I have learned over the years that whenever you teach Bible prophecy or the book of Revelation, people have tons of questions. And that's a good thing. I shared last week because we are human beings. Uh, we are made in God's image. He's put eternity in our hearts. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that. That people, even non-spiritual people, are curious by nature. Uh, that's why there's movies about the end of the world. That's why people want to know, is there an end to all this? Is there a God that created this? It's why Jesus said he was the Alpha and the Omega. There's logically a beginning. There's logically an end. So questions are wonderful. I actually got two emails this week. I'm so proud of you about the red heifer in Israel. Now for those of you who study the Bible, you know that you need a red heifer if you're going to do animal sacrifices in a temple. Israel's looking to build a third temple. Problem. The Dome of the Rock, that classic scene of um, Jerusalem, has a mosque where the Holy of Holies was. And so Christians, they want to see a red heifer because the new temple gets built. We're out of here and Jesus is coming, right? So I'm going to answer questions like that, not today, but I'll answer questions like that. Send me anything you want. We will talk about events. However, the number one question that always rises to the top is, Wow, I want to be a student of prophecy. I want to know what you know. I want to know what God's up to. How do I start? The book of Revelation seems hard. It's mysterious. It's full of numbers and symbols and locusts with men's faces and trumpets and vials. And I don't even know where to begin. And you know what a lot of people are thinking? A lot of people are thinking, I know there's different views of this book. I know well-meaning Christians who love God, who are really, really smart, hold different views. If these smart people hold different views, how am I ever going to understand it? So they develop what many Christians and churches have, which is a pan theology. That means it's going to pan out in the end, and I'll leave it to God. Okay? The problem is Jesus promised a blessing to those who read it, hopefully you and me, but me on Sunday mornings, to those who hear it and those who live out the words of the prophecy, and in chapter 22, Jesus himself, red letter in your Bible, promises a blessing. So we want to be a church and a people who find the blessing. Why would Jesus say that? I'm going, to, I'm going to demystify Revelation this morning. I'm going to give you three keys that will unlock the book and really help you and make it a very easy book to understand. Before I do, I want to give you the four views. This will be less than two minutes. There's the preterist view that says these 22 chapters that we're going to go through, it's going to take us a while. Uh, have already happened. Isn't that a bummer? Like, in other words, very shortly after John, this stuff all happened, and it's already in the past for you and me. There's a view of history that says these 22 chapters are evolving. We don't know where we are. We could be in the early stages, the latter stages. Jesus is coming. We just don't know where we are. Now, let me say this. I said there were very smart people behind this. Eric Gregg has written a commentary called The Four Views. He lays them out parallel in, in a Bible that he has. Uh, the people that take the history view will plug in popes and revolutions and nations and religions, and it looks pretty airtight, pretty daunting, uh, if I can add. Then there's the spiritual approach. This is the idea that nothing here is factual, nothing here has anything to do with history. This is one classic allegory of a cosmic battle between God and Antichrist, and God wins and Jesus returns. It's kind of like a J.R.R. Tolkien uh, novel of Middle Earth with all these weird creatures and all, just to get a spiritual point across. And then there's the view that I hold, the futurist view, that all the events we're going to read in here after the church is in chapter 3 
are all somewhere in the future, and when they begin, it's a very short time, seven years. Remember, Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. When, when the clock starts, it goes really quick. Matthew 24 and parts of Daniel. Uh, I understand all the views. I've researched them. I read about it. Here's what I want you to do. Forget everything I just said, okay? That's not the way to approach Revelation. If you approach Revelation by understanding all these views and trying to go in, um, it'll be crazy-making to you, and you're going to put the book aside. I'm going to give you three keys today that will unlock this book. Please write them down. Before I do, I want to give you a quote by Sir Isaac Newton, who wrote this in the 17th century. Think about this. He said, about the time of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies, to prophetic scripture, and insist on their literal interpretation in the, much, in the midst of much clamor and opposition. Uh, Newton was right. There has been more written, preached about movies, uh, talks about prophecy in the last 50 years than the first 1950 years of the church. Here's why. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament is the key to all biblical prophecy. Uh, when Daniel wrote his last chapter, chapter 11, he's told to seal that book. Revelation, by the way, is unsealed. He's told to seal that book till the time of the end, and it says many men will run to and fro and knowledge will increase. Now that can mean one of two things. Uh, many will run to and fro looking at the prophecies and the knowledge of them will increase, or just naturally global trafficking will increase. Our ability to get one place to another and our knowledge will increase. I think both are true, right? Look at knowledge. Like 200 years ago, if you had to go anywhere in the world, you went by boat. Now you get on a nice airliner. I think you can even take a shower on some of these airlines now, drink champagne. And I think knowledge has gone way up, right? iPhones and what we know about nuclear fission and all that. But so has our understanding of prophecy. This book is now unsealed. The other thing Newton said that has prophetically come to be is there's been much opposition to those who read the prophecies literally. People make fun of us. They, they think we're out of our mind, we're delusional, etc. I want to give you two fancy $10 words today. Take these words and $2, you can actually get a cup of coffee in the table after the service. These two fancy words are exegesis and eisegesis. This is as hard as Sunday morning gets. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Exegesis means to draw out Eisegesis means to read in. Um, here's how it works. And I'm not putting any religion or belief system down, but let's take the doctrine of Mary, perpetual virgin and born without sin, um, so forth and so on. If you want to read that in the scripture, you can find scriptures that probably can support that or anything. But if you're drawing out of scripture, you will never find that doctrine. Never, never, never. So we want to be those who draw out of Scripture, and to draw out of Scripture, you have to read it in the literal, grammatical, historical method. Can I tell you something? That's how you read everything else. So if I wake up and read the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I'm reading the sports section, and I read about a home run that was hit yesterday, first of all, I know it's historical. They played a real game. There was a real home run hit. But if the writer says he hit it a country mile, I know it's exaggeration. I know it's hyperbole to kind of Give me the view of, wow, went into the upper deck. Or if somebody writes about uh, information that was given someone and they looked at them like they had two heads, 
I know, as I read, those people didn't have two heads. It was startling, misunderstood. Does everybody track with that? That's how we read almost every genre of scripture. Listen, until it tells us otherwise. Dr. David Cooper, the leading scholar on interpretation, Greek and Hebrew scholar, said that whenever the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. I teach you guys about common sense probably more than any other pastor. I really do. Because the eyeball test and common sense really is the best sense. When someone has to back in and say, oh, you don't understand Greek and Hebrew, and let me tell you about this, you're heading into murky waters, okay? You have Bibles on your lap. When Scripture makes this common sense, seek no other sense, take every word as its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless the facts of the immediate context study in the light of other Scriptures and axiomatic and fundamental truths tell you otherwise. Guess who interpreted the Bible this way? Downstairs, every kid, if you want to help your kids out, get an A, downstairs in children's church, this is the answer to every Sunday school question. Guess who interpreted the Bible this way? Jesus did. The Bible Jesus read was the Old Testament. He talked about David and Abraham and Job and Adam and Daniel. And by the way, he talked about some of the most controversial figures that scholars malign today. Remember what he said about Adam and Eve? He said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. God made them. There was a beginning. There were creation, and God made them male and female. You might be shocked to know this. There is a battle for the beginning, the origin of life, uh, even among Christians. Do you know Christians have 10 views of creation? 10 views. Now, you're probably thinking, well, I know at least two. There's a young earth view that God created the earth in six literal days, rested on the seventh, and then I know there's another one, theistic evolution, that it was long periods of time, that Genesis is a poem, right? No, there's actually 10. There's a progressive evolution, theistic evolution. There's a progressive evolution, theistic, with a literal Adam and Eve, and we go on and on and on. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, how do we ever get to this place? It looks kind of natural to me. When you start to move away from a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, you have to fill gaps in. And you have to start deciding what happened and what didn't happen. Uh, there was a Christian on Bill Maher's show. Why any Christian would go on Bill Maher's show, I have no idea. And they were talking about this. And Bill Maher said, ha, 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 you guys believe the earth's only 6,000 years old. And this Christian said, oh, no, 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 Bill. Genesis was a poem. Here's the interpretation. You know what Bill Maher said? Come on. He said, if you're going to believe, why don't you just believe what it really says? Why do you got to do all these, you know, gymnastics? Here, here's a guy who's so anti-Christianity, and he's saying, look, why don't you just stick with the real story? William Tyndale, you have Bibles because of him, in the 15th century, uh, not only preserved the Bible and interpreted the Bible, but led the way for the Reformation, he said... Thou shalt understand, therefore, that Scripture has but one sense, which is the literal. And the literal sense is the root and ground of all, the anchor that never fails. Whereas, if you cleave, you will never err or go out of the way. I'm trying to paraphrase his old English. And if you leave the, listen, if you leave the literal sense, paraphrase, you're going to be in murky waters. Today, the Jesus Seminar. They actually have a Bible coded in, I believe, 
yellow and blue and pink and another color telling you what Jesus said, what he probably said, what he might have said, the miracles that happened, the ones that did. You see where all this goes? So one of the keys to unlock Revelation is approach it like every other book of the Bible. Read it literally until it says otherwise. Now, there's another key, and it's in verse 19. John was told to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Look up at the screen. Write the things which you have seen. That was this vision of Jesus. We're going to go through it. It has symbols and imagery. The things which are, they were seven literal churches in a normal postal route in Asia Minor. We'll talk about that. And then the things that will take place after this. The Greek term, metatauta, after these things, very important in the book of Revelation. This is the only book in the Bible that has a blessing. It's the only book in the Bible that gives us its own outline. If we stick to the outline, it will go well for us. We can demystify the Bible. Here's a question, though. Why does the Bible and why does apocalyptic literature use symbols and signs? Well, one of the reasons it uses signs, you have to understand this, John is the writer, he wrote the Gospel of John, and he selected seven miracles or signs, same word he uses in Revelation for symbol, that Jesus did to show forth his glory. So let's take the first one. This, everybody knows this one, right? Jesus turned water into wine. Almost impossible to find somebody who doesn't know Jesus did that miracle, especially those who like to drink, right? So Jesus is at a wedding, Mary says they ran out of water, he says it's not my hour, he turns water into wine, and John says this is the beginning of miracles to show forth his glory. A sign, listen, a symbol or a sign was something that pointed to something greater. That's why there's a sign. Jesus didn't turn water into wine to be cool. He never said hocus pocus and he just sat there and they poured it out and it was wine. He was pointing to something greater. What was greater? Israel, the nation God called, was his vineyard. Grapes were a sign of abundance. Every man will sit under his vine and his fig tree. You ever see that picture of two Israelis with a long pole with big grapes the size of softballs? It was a sign of God's favor. The crushing of grapes, the releasing of the, the grape juice or the crushing of olive oil was a sign of the outflow of the Holy Spirit. Here's the imagery. Jesus was the wine bringer. He was bringing joy back to Israel's relationship with God. He was bringing joy back to man's relationship with God. He was bringing joy, get this, for man's relationship with a woman in marriage. See, the religious leaders had made that a duty. He brought back the delight. That preaches. That, you could write stories and books and songs for millennia off of that imagery rather than just say, Jesus gave them joy. The other thing about signs is they can outlast time. Uh, look up on the screen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Instead of saying famine and death, we get these four powerful beast, and we'll explain them when we get there. Now, what if I gave you an assignment today? What if I gave everybody a piece of paper and a pen and said, okay, we're going to write a description of Donald Trump that we're going to have to put in like one of these capsules, and 500 years from now, people are going to have to know what this guy was about. It'd be a daunting task, right? Can't take a picture of his hair. You can't get any of his tweets, right? You'd have to come up with some kind of symbols, uh, Dennis Rodman, when he prayed, 
played for the bulls, right? You know, imagine if they dug up our civilization and they found a bull on the front of a uniform and this guy had piercings and all. Almost sounds like biblical imagery, doesn't it? Then there's code, right? When Christians read the Antichrist is 666, that's code, if you know your Bible, that man was created on the sixth day. And there's a trinity of man. This is an imperfect trinity. Solomon had 666 fine talents of gold. Is telling us that he was going astray as a king. It wasn't for kings to love wine or to have horses or money. And Solomon was going astray. Why? Because we understand numbers. So the divine outline here helps us. So what did John see? Look at verse 9. He said, I, John... Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. I shared that was a penal colony. John's about 90. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that's either Sunday or unto the day of the Lord, unto the day of the end, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Was it a trumpet? It sounded like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to seven churches. These were literal. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that I spoke with, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven, one like the Son of Man. That is the term that Jesus endeared to himself, used 60 times in Scripture. It's in the book of Daniel the son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girdled about his chest with a golden band, his head and hair were like, white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, refined in a furnace, his voice the sound of many waters. He had a two-edged sword going out of his mouth, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. Now John said when he saw this, he fell dead. This is strange. Because for three years he traveled with Jesus and he never had this experience. He was at the cross, he never had the experience. He saw Jesus after the resurrection. All of a sudden now he, see, he sees Jesus and he's, he falls at his feet as dead. Why? Because this is the revelation. Not revelations. It's the revelation. It's the unveiling. I talked about that last week. You know, Christmas carols are rich in theology. We sing Hark the Herald Angels every Christmas Eve. Listen to stanza two. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh. When Jesus laid in a manger, he, he was wrapped in flesh. In VBS, uh, I think our title this year or a couple years ago was Jesus our superhero. His power was veiled in flesh. Great is the mystery, he came in a body. In the resurrection, a little more unveiling. Mount of Transfiguration, a more unveiling. All of a sudden, John sees what Isaiah saw. He saw the incarnate God. No man can see God and live, the book of Exodus tells us. And he drops at his feet as dead. And he gives this description. Now, he didn't see this description. He saw something like it. He tried to put it into something we would understand. He sees basically a high priest. White garments with a gold band. That's what the high priest wore. White is a symbol of purity. That's why your doctor wears white. Uh, the white hair is the ancient of days. This one's eternal and omniscient. Uh, he says 
You ready? His eyes are like flames of fire. You know what that means? It means God can see through everything. You know how we have these scandals that come out years later? God always saw them. He sees everything. And let me tell you, God seeing everything is good and bad. You probably know where this is going. When you look at your life and you see injustice, you can sit back and say, you know, no one knows, but I know God knows. He knows my heart. He know, you know, I'm in this rift with somebody, but God knows me. He, he sees. That's comforting, right? Here's what's not comforting. He sees. <laughs> so the facade that you and I put on and, and some of the backdoor things that go, he sees. He sees it all. He sees everything. Now, Here's the problem with how he sees. Sometimes what he sees is different than we see. We applaud wonderful things and God's saying, mm-mm, how do I know? We're gonna look at a church in Laodicea that said, we are rich and in need of nothing. Some people say that. Some of your friends might say that. I don't need anything, I'm good, I'm, I'm a self-made man. You know what Jesus said? You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. The church at Laodicea, by every metric, if we were there in that day, from human viewpoint, we would have said it was, it was a banging church, right? They were hitting the ball out of the park. And God says, uh-uh. Eyes like flaming fire, feet like burnished brass. Brass, judgment, the, the serpent on the pole, right? Uh, sin was judged. This all comes from the Old Testament, 500 images from the Old Testament. But here's what I love about it. Verse 9, John says, I was your brother and companion in tribulation. This astounds me. John didn't say, I'm the leader of the church at Ephesus. I'm one of the 12 apostles. He didn't pull out his card that said his name's gonna be on the New Jerusalem or he's gonna write five or six books of the Bible. He said, I am your brother. That's all I am in tribulation. I'm going through the same thing you're going through. When I became a Christian, I was in a church where if you went to a conference, you would go out and eat in one place as the congregation, and if there was a function, and then the church leaders behind closed doors had catered meals. And then I get to Calvary Chapel, I'll never forget, I'm go I go to my first pastor's conference. And for those of you who know Chuck Smith, the founder, over 1,200 churches, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Chuck's voice is very distinguishable. And uh, I'm in a long line for a mess hall, and I hear Chuck's voice, and I turn around, and he's at the back of the line. And he's at the back of the line because that's where he fell in. If he was in the front of the line, it's because that's where he fell in. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's no rank, there's no order. Now, listen, that doesn't mean there's not a respect, right? People call me Pastor Bob, right? And I know it's out of respect, that's fine. I am not a reverend. I'll never let anybody call me that because only God's reverend, okay? I understand my function and my title, but I am just like you. How in the world do we ever get to pomp and circumstance in the church and titles and hierarchy and robes and all that, I'll never know. But it's a million miles from anything we see from this man. I am your brother in companion in tribulation. And he looks at Jesus and he sees this incredible image and this voice. You know what I love about his voice? Many waters. 
Every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, everyone can hear him. His sheep hear his voice. You know what the comfort here is? He has the keys to hell and death. See, there would be churches throughout history that would be persecuted. Churches that would suffer because of poverty. Churches that would have wealth and be politically condemned. And you know what he was telling John? John, trust me. I got this. I'm the head of the church. You notice where he walks? Among the candlesticks or the lampstands. Uh, by the way, the candlesticks, that's old King James. Candles weren't even invented yet. The, they just put that in because they were translating from England. Lampstands. The lampstands were in the holy area, outside the Holy of Holies. They were continually, the wicks were trimmed. The oil was put in by the priest. Notice these are perpetual. The light bearers would be you and me. We would reflect the light. You know what the comfort to John was? Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Nothing's catching him by surprise. It's been here for 2,000 years. We are his under rowers. We are the under shepherds. Yes, we have a job. But when you put Jesus as the head, and when his presence matters, things will go well with you. So write the things which thou hast seen, the picture of Jesus. And then what about the things that are, the seven churches? I share with you that these churches are literal. They form the normal postal route in the area of Asia Minor. I think they also represent churches through the ages. Uh, in any one age, like ours, there's a persecuted church. There's a church with limited resources. We had a pastor this week here from Kabir in Kenya. Uh, slums of Kabir, he's doing ministry. He's got a way different calling than I do. We have churches that live under freedom. We have churches in Iraq that are persecuted. They have no Bibles. We can go on and on. Uh, some people try and get cute and say, well, this represents the church age. We'll move from persecution uh, on to revival, and then the Laodicean church will be the last church. I don't interpret it that way. If you want to, you can. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I just think the comfort here is that, John, one day, I know you're not going to believe it, but the very emperor of Rome that's persecuting you, one day, all your statues are going to be there, and a denomination is going to have their headquarters there, if you can believe it. You know, some people like to brag, like, I work for IBM, or I work for Apple, I work for Facebook. Oh, cool, what's IBM have, 250,000 employees? There's a billion or more Christians. There's a church on every corner. We're the greatest corporation or conglomeration of people that's ever lived. John, I got this. Don't worry about it. And it gives all of us a hope. And the things which will come after this, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven angels, angelos or messenger, commentators believe are the seven pastors. But I gotta tell you, if there's an angel sitting on this church, I'll take it, okay? I'll take it every day. There's seven churches. I'm gonna, we're gonna go through one very short but it's the heart of what I want to say today. Chapter two, verse one, to the church at Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. You have persevered and had patience and labored for my namesake and you're not weary. It's all good stuff. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do your first works, or I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from the place unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to him who overcomes, hopefully that's all of us, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Human nature is that we love new things, don't we? We get enamored with new things. Remember when the internet came out? And you're like, oh my gosh, I can type something in, wait three minutes on AOL, and it'll come up. It's fascinating. Now, if I type something in and it's more than three seconds on my rate, right? Uh, I drove used cars trying to get my kids through college. I have like a two-year-old car now. I just pushed the button. And I rented a car and there was no button. And I'm fishing through my pockets like, what an inconvenience this is, right? We get excited over new things. I was at the Wegmans opening. They invited me. And I was sitting in there and they had a, you know, they had a lot of businesses around. We're having, and I said, hey, when do you guys open? They said, uh, Sunday. I'm like, why in the world would you open on a Sunday? They're like, you wouldn't believe it. People will be here eight hours early. They'll come and win a Bagos the night before. I'm like, why? And they're like, well, they want to get the first receipt. They're called Wegmans Openers. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Think anybody's going there in a Winnebago now? Right? You know, things wear off. Ballparks, new things, they all wear off. Church wears off. You get saved, you come, the songs are amazing, the preaching's amazing, the people are amazing, and 10 years later, you're like the movie critic, right? Worship's too long, they didn't play the right songs, the preaching's all, right? Things wear off. So Jesus comes to this church. I love your programs. You're laboring hard. It's a good thing. The balls are all spinning. Wonderful. I just see the motivation's a little off. Now, he doesn't tell them to stop what they're doing, right? People write books about this all the time. Just shut all our churches down and we'll sit on the beach and read our Bibles. No. He said, you've lost your first love. Now, let me make this... Let me bring it down another level. These are literal churches. These are churches in every age, and they're also Christians at every age. You are not alive because you're in an alive church. Okay? You have a spiritual condition, and here's the thermometer. You're going to find yourself at all parts of your life in one of these seven, but just for the sake of this morning, maybe God's speaking to you. Maybe you, maybe I, have lost our first love. The love of espousal. Anybody remember first love? Anybody looking for first love? <laughs> you know what it's like, right? You're, you, you, it, it, it supersedes your brain. You do things that don't make sense, like open car doors and buy flowers, and right? It just bypasses your understanding. You wear matching clothes and things of that nature. First love is magical, it's enthusiastic, it's full of passion. It involves service. We give, see? The motivation's gone. Some of you might think you're going through the motions. 
Go to church, check the box, read my Bible, check the box. Somewhere the emotion's going out of all this, the love. I've been doing this for 25 years. I still get giddy about things that we're doing and opening days of sizzling summer and guest speakers we land and cool initiatives that we're doing. Jesus said we'd have to be like little children. Wayne Cordiero pastors a church in Hawaii, which is not easy. Imagine pastoring a church where it's 80 every Sunday uh, with beaches and you'll never buy a building because it's too expensive. He wrote a book and I met Wayne and talked to him. It's called Irresistible Church. 10 traits of an irresistible church. He lists as the major trait, irresistible churches, hunger for the presence of God. That's what we sang this morning. But don't be fooled. The presence of God is not somebody whooping it up. The presence of God is not, you know, cross my legs and I'm in the presence of God. I will say this till my dying day. If I'm in a church where the presence of God really is, there's mission, there's drive, there's focus, there's compassion, there's love, there, there, there's, there's a target on the wall. Because Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. There's vision and power wherever Jesus' presence is. Because people matter to him and they should matter to us. That's where his presence is. And that's the church we long to be. See, at the end of the day, it's all about love. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, did you hear Sue and John left the church? And I said, well, how would I know? They didn't tell me. <laughs> I'm always amazed at the people who do tell me. Pastor Bob, we've loved it here. We've been here three years. God's called us to Boston. I pray for them. It's wonderful. But then there's the people that leave and never tell. Some of these people I've had to my home for holidays and such. Um, and you know what I tell my staff? And I just want to tell all of you. This is what I tell our staff. We can only love who's here. This is our calling. Our calling is to love who's here, not to think about all the inside baseball of the people who aren't here, just to be honest. Because at the end of the day, this is all about love. We build a cafe not just to feed people. We build a cafe to love on them. For the people that stay and want to do extra with us, we want to sit down and have a cup of coffee and love on those people. We want to love on your kids. We want to love on your teenagers. We can only love on you if you're here. That's what shepherds do. And Jesus commended this church and he said, look, just little tune-up. And it's always this way, remember. That's all you gotta do, walk down memory lane. Think about the day you accepted Christ. Think about the day you walked into a church. And then repent, go another way. Start serving, start giving. If you don't feel anything, do something and let the feeling come later. Maybe this is our church, maybe it's you. What does Jesus think of our church? What does he think of you? And then can I give you the third and final key and we won't even go into it because I know some of you are wondering if we're done. <laughs> the final key to unlocking, and this is a big key, you'll never understand the book of Revelation or I don't know what view you'll find yourself in if you don't know what to do with the Jews. You'll never figure it out. The word church never appears again in the book of Revelation after chapter three. In fact, it turns very Jewish. All the imagery's Jewish. You're gonna see the 12 tribes there. 
you're going to have to make a decision. When God made a covenant with these people forever, did it mean forever? Or did it mean till Jesus came? And that's a decision you're going to have to make. I will tell you this. There's 14.5 million Jews on the earth. That is .006 of the entire population. 14.5 million of them reside basically in five cities. New York, L.A., Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and I think Rome. For the first time in history, predominantly they're in Israel. They used to be predominantly in New York. Predominantly in Israel, this small .006 group of people has given us a disproportionate uh, gift of democracy and human rights and Nobel Peace Prize winners. Uh, they've been displaced for 2,000 years. They've been, been put in ghettos. There's been holocausts. What are you going to do with the Jews? If you put a gun to my head and said, give me one reason you believe in God, I'd say the Jews. And you're going to have to use that key and figure it out if Revelation's gonna make sense. And we'll get you there, and we'll talk about it. So much good stuff's ahead. Read chapters ahead, pick up a commentary. There is a blessing in this book. But I think the banner over today is, God wants us to love one another. When God's presence is in a church and there's mission and it's functioning, it's messy. Look at all of us, this is only one service by the way. You put enough of these people with enough of visions and ideas and all, we're going we're gonna to be cranky and we're going we're gonna to say the wrong things and we're going to repair and confess and repent. But if we have our eyes on the Ancient of Days, the leader of the church, see, we have nothing to offer. We're just a reflection of his light, his glory, his power. And you know what he's telling us? I got this. I got this. I had a plan for Delaware County long before you ever came on the scene. And we're all here on the merits of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ.